Good morning, everyone. Um, on behalf of the Tribune, I'd like to welcome you all to our second annual Texas Tribune Festival. My name is Brandi Grissom. I'm the managing editor at the Tribune, and I also cover criminal justice and law and order issues for the Tribune as well. So this morning, we have a really moving and fascinating panel to get us started with. I think you'll all be really glad you got up bright and early to be here. Before we get started with all of that, though, I just want to give you sort of the lay of the land so that you know what to expect and kind of set your agenda for the day. Um, there are five other panels going on throughout the day, five other tracks. So just because you're starting your day here at Criminal Justice at Law & Order doesn't mean you have to stay here all day. Feel free to mix and, max, mix and match and go to sessions that sort of fit your best interest. Um, we have shuttles that will take you to and from each of the different um, events, so feel free to use those if you wear uncomfortable shoes like I did today. Um, the, other, um, the other things we have available at noon, there'll be some really terrific um, food vendors, some food trucks that Austin is famous for out on the South Mall. So make sure to take advantage of the great weather and the great food and continue your conversation over some nice lunch. Um, this evening, of course, what festival in Austin would be complete without a party? So we have a little party at Schultz's Garden. We really hope that you all will come. So the gentlemen that we're going to talk with this morning have really had harrowing experiences with the criminal justice system. But what we can take away from that, what we can learn, is what we're here about today. Through tragedy, hopefully, will come some solutions. So today we're here to talk with these men whose experiences can hopefully shed a lot of light on the criminal justice system, and we can learn a little bit about ways that we can fix it. So I'm going to introduce each of our panelists this morning. We'll have about 60 minutes to talk. At the end, for about 15 or 20 minutes, I'll open things up to questions from the audience. And um, if, you would, don't, if you don't mind, please make sure that your phone is silenced. If you're going to be tweeting this morning, please use the hashtag TribuneFest. So first, let me introduce to you Carrie Max Cook. Carrie Max Cook was um, convicted of murder in 1978. Uh, the victim was a lovely young woman in his apartment complex. At age 22, Carrie was sentenced to death. He spent two decades on death row. He was released in 1999, and DNA evidence showed that another man's DNA was on, was on the victim. Despite that and the fact that the courts have ruled there was prosecutorial misconduct in his case, Carrie is still fighting today to prove that he is innocent of murder. Next to me, we have Billy James Smith. In 1987, Billy was convicted of rape. Um, again, in his apartment complex, uh, a woman there identified him as her attacker. And even though both Billy and his sister said that he was asleep in his apartment at the time, neither the jury nor the police believed them. And so Billy was sentenced to life in prison. He spent 19 years behind bars before DNA proved that he was, in fact, innocent. Billy's been out since 2006. Michael Morton was convicted in 1987 of murdering his wife, Christine. Um, he was sentenced to life in prison as well. Last year, DNA testing showed not only that Michael was innocent, but it helped lead to the arrest of a man who is now awaiting trial for that crime. In the process of investigating the wrongful conviction, Michael's lawyers found evidence that they say proves that the prosecutor in his case deliberately withheld critical evidence that could have led to his acquittal from the very beginning. This December, the prosecutor in that case will face um, sort of an unprecedented court of inquiry to determine whether or not he should face criminal charges for his role in Michael's wrongful conviction. So I wanted to start out this morning um, talking a little bit with our panelists about what I think is 
really one of the biggest consequences of wrongful conviction that is important for all of us to understand because we haven't been in those shoes. We haven't been behind bars. And I think understanding what life is like and how you cope with that as an innocent man is something that we are all kind of at a loss to understand. So, Billy, I was hoping you could start us off a little bit this morning by talking about, um, you know, what are some of those experiences that you think are emblematic of what prison life is like, how you cope with that, um, and what gives you hope that a day of justice will eventually come? Well, actually, in um, 1986, I was arrested August 7th. Uh, it was about 7 o'clock in the morning, and uh, that day was a very beautiful morning, kind of like this morning, but the sun was up a little bit more, and it was a little brighter, a little cooler, but it was summertime. And uh, police knocked on the door, asked for me by name, and I come to the door, come out on the balcony, and uh, started a conversation with the uh, investigating officer. Uh, about 10 minutes after that, I was handcuffed, arrested, taken to jail. Uh, and in 1987, I was tried, convicted, and sentenced to aggravated life sentence of a black female in Dallas County. Uh, I served 19 years, 11 months for a crime which I did not commit. I was 35 years old when I was arrested. I was 54 years old when I was released. In between the dash, uh, while doing time in prison, that was some very dark moments for me. Uh, I at one time, and some exonerees will sometimes admit it among ourselves, but sometimes we won't, we'll fail to mention it to the public. That was the time uh, when I had actually thought about uh, committing suicide because I was just, I had been in prison so long and I had almost given up. And I just, it was just like, I didn't have anything else to live for. Here's someone, you know, I was going along every day, uh, not bothering anybody. You know, I was uh, trying to do the right thing. I was, uh, I was trying to work and, you know, and do some things. And then all of a sudden I get arrested. And the lady said I raped her. And that was very embarrassing for me to be in prison well, I couldn't tell anyone what I was in prison for. I was afraid to tell anyone if, I, if they knew what I was in prison for. I feared for my life. Uh, when you're in prison for things like that, that's just not a topic that you care to talk about or let anybody know what you was there for. It took me three years before I was able to tell anyone uh, what I was in prison for uh, after getting to know a few people. Uh, and the first person I actually told I was in prison, what I was in prison for, was a prison guard, wasn't a prison inmate. Because uh, these two guys here, they can tell you, you know, being in prison, you know, uh, if you're in there for some type of sexual assault, then, you know, you're looked upon by other inmates as a, you know, as a strange character. And, you know, you just have to, you know, learn to keep your mouth shut. That's the best way of protecting yourself. Uh, because you could get raped. And that's the honest truth. I know men that come to prison that's been in prison for rape, raping women, children, old ladies, 
young boys, and they've gotten raped and murdered or killed. And then, you know, and they even said that they were innocent. You know, so you just never know, but, you know, you, you go through a period of where you're in fear for your life, so that makes you want to give up. You have no contact with anyone. Like, I had 10 family members pass on me while I was in prison. They actually died, never got a chance to tell them goodbye, didn't make a funeral or anything. So I was kind of like alone. I had one sister, the sister that I was living with the day I got arrested. She was with me from the day I got arrested to the day I got released. And that was the only main contact that I had with the free world. Uh, I lived on a budget of $15 a month. That's all my sister was able to send me. Now, you know, everybody out here has the luxury of having more. You have other people in prison was able to have more than that. But I had to suffer some hardships in prison just to survive. So I had a lot of things that was on me mentally and physically that just kind of like was taking me out. And But I decided that I wanted to do something uh, about this, that I wasn't going to let this get the best of me. So then I, I went to prison as a Christian, but I converted to Islam, and I started practicing Islam, and I became a practicing Muslim, and so I found God in the faith of Islam, and so I started uh, practicing the religion, and uh, believing that there was a way for me to get out. Now, before then, uh, I bucked the system. I wouldn't work. I didn't work for the first two years I was there, and after that third year, and I started seeking uh, higher power. Then I, I decided to go to work, and then I was like, I was in population with all the regular inmates in population. Uh, there's an inmate here, or uh, there's a guy that was inmate with me at the same time on the same unit that's sitting in the audience with you right now. He's one of the longest standing inmates, Alexander uh, Reed, that was in prison that serves 27 years. He and I was on the same unit when I got there. Uh, he did 27 years. Johnny Lindsay, he's, he's out there. And uh, Johnny traveled down here with me just to show you the kind of effect that things have from you when you get out. When we go out of town, we go somewhere, we try to go in Paris. We try to go with someone that's with us so if anything happens or anybody says anything, we know we have a witness. Or we have somebody with us to make sure that we don't venture off or we don't go in certain places that suspect. Because even though the prison experience was hard on me, I was able to live through that. But you think I had trouble then? I, I have a hard time now outside. You know, it's really hard living this down. This is something that would be with me the rest of my life. That's a really good you know. transition to talk with you, Carrie, about one of the subjects I think is really important, life after prison and how you sort of transition back to the free world. And in your case, you're still sort of dealing with this conviction and trying to get it overturned. And you have a young son as well, and that affects his life as well. How do you cope with you know, being out in the free world, fighting this conviction, and you know, trying to have some semblance of a, of a normal life as well? Could I, could I add something to what Billy said Please. first? The question you ask him, what's emblematic of the life in prison lifestyle? I mean, uh, 
when when go when when you go to prison in in any prison this is this is universal any prison in, in the world accused of a crime against a woman or a child you automatically targeted for abuse and sometimes even death um, I first met Billy a couple of weeks ago at, at the dentist's office uh, we bumped into each other inadvertently but as soon as he said that my mind went back to my own experience uh, experiences in prison uh, as soon as I walk uh, first of all Smith County officials in my case Tyler Texas programmed the rape uh, pro profiled the rape and murder of 21 year old Linda Edwards is that one committed by a misogynistic woman hating homosexual uh, upon my arrest I became that misogynistic woman hating homosexual so I went to prison accused of the rape and murder of a young woman also as both these individuals could talk about and probably write their own book on uh, being accused of homosexual in prison alone is is is, is really really bad in, uh, in the prison hierarchy you're the lowest of the low on the totem pole I was not homosexual but I went to prison double barrel both barrels uh, accused as a, hom as a homosexual and also accused of a rape and murder I didn't commit so my introduction to a Texas prison I was stabbed and I was raped uh, and that that went on for 22 years but uh, what I want to what I want to speak about this important and I know Michael understands this really well I know Billy Smith understand Lindsay understand everyone that's ever gone to prison they probably won't talk about this subject like I am so open about because it's it's so personal but I know what a life Billy had without him telling you because accused of rape uh, he had to he had to be very careful who he talked to because see when you're innocent and I can smell an innocent person a mile away. I smelled Michael Morton as innocent as soon as he opened his mouth. It's just people who go to prison, especially death row where I was, um, death row houses uh, is a warehouse for, for every conceivable mental and emotional violent disorder known as psychiatry. You're different. When you're innocent, like Billy, uh, Michael, or I, you're different. You don't have that aggression. You don't have that hatred. You don't have that hatred for the for the system uh, yet, <laughs> but um, and, and you're different. You're innocent, and they smell that. When the more you say you're innocent, the more vulnerable you become. One, everyone says they're innocent, but if you really are innocent, that means I can pretty much do to you what I want to, because you're not violent. You're not like me. You're not going to do anything about it. So that was probably that was pretty much my dilemma. Here I was, really truly innocent. I didn't go to death row or killer. I wasn't going to make death row turn me into one. The more they raped me, stabbed me, and abused me, the more I couldn't do nothing about it. Because you see, in my case, uh, my case, legal scholars around the country call my case the worst example of police and prosecutorial misconduct in the history of Texas. You have to read my book to understand that. So I knew if I stabbed someone, which what the Aryan Brotherhood, the gangs asked me to do, Kira, you want to make this nightmare stop for you? Man, you ain't never getting out. You can say you're innocent, but ain't nobody listening to you, boy. You need to stab that dude. I'm not going to stab him. I didn't stab anybody before I got to prison. I'm not going to stab anybody now. But the fact that I wouldn't made me vulnerable all the time. So I really, really respect Billy even more than I automatically did as an exoneree because I know that his life was hell accused of rape. And he had to pick his friends very very wisely in Michael Morton's case just saying he's innocent accused of killing his wife I know there were those predators they're everywhere in prison prison is nothing but predators and 
The more innocent you are, the more they want to prey on you because they think you're weak. Your innocence becomes a symbol of your weakness because you're not capable of doing what they will do for respect. Now I can go to the second part of your question if I could. Sure. Well, we can get back to that. I think you brought up a really good question that I, that I wanted to talk about too, and that's how you protect yourself from being victimized in prison. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Michael. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, everybody's different. All the different personality types just in this room. So every person will tell you what they went through and it may not be the same thing that happened, would happen to you. But it, it's all based on your personality type. Um, somebody once said, the predators know who to prey on. And my personal experience was that yeah, there are a lot of predators in there, but if you clock the first person that gives you any grief, that goes a long way. And the number one thing inside is you stand up for yourself. You're not going to win every fight. Nobody wins every fight. And there's nothing wrong with being in a fight if you're trying to protect yourself. You're not stealing somebody's radio or taking their commissary. But you just have to stand up for yourself. And that's not um, to say that one personality type is going to be better or safer because it's just fate. You never really know what's going to happen. But um, and, and it's a personal choice and it's a personal responsibility. But like I said, just for me, and like I say, you, you clock the first person that gives you any real grief. Because words are cheap, but everybody hears them. Is that ever something you expected yourself to to say that you know you'd be clocking someone, <laughs> protecting yourself? Yeah, I, I, that wasn't my uh, experience in the free world uh, before I went to prison. Uh, you don't just size up everybody, you meet, and go. I think I take him. You know, no, you didn't. That wasn't at all. It, it may be uh, an end result. It, it's not unlike everywhere all of our social contract in the end is based on force the, I, I'm polite with you for instance hopefully yes well I, I am and I, I will allow you to say or do so many things that can be very insulting and some people would say unforgiving but at the end of the day there is a line and um, I think that's true for almost every social contract. The universal language in prison is violence. If you don't, if you don't clock someone, but on death row, and mostly all prisons, it's more than clocking. You need to stab someone to get your respect and make everyone else leave you alone. I had a, a stack of disciplinaries like that from fighting. Fighting wasn't enough. Girls fight. They wanted me to take someone's life to make it stop. So prison. It's, all, it's a daily challenge. You, they, they want you, like, like Michael was talking about, you know, yeah, we're clocking someone will, will get you respect. Clocking a guard will get you a little more. But still, the, younger, the, the, the prisoners came, came to prison, became younger and younger and younger, and, and you're just clocking people every day. Where does the clocking stop? It, it doesn't. So you have to step it up. There's people on prison, death row, just wanting to be left alone, so they just stabbed someone. And that was the message, don't mess with me, and, and it works. But sometimes you have to keep stabbing people, that's the problem. And in my case, I was innocent. Uh, no matter how innocent I was, still to this day, I'm still fighting this corrupt county. But my disciplinaries for fighting, if I would have just went around clocking people, which I didn't, 
uh, I was defending myself, but my disciplinaries were used against me to show that I was violent. So it was a catch-22. It was a no-win situation. And I knew that. Even on death row day one at 20, 21 years old, I was afraid. I mean, I stood up for myself every day, even after I was sexually assaulted and had good POSSY carved on my behind. I still stood up for myself. I never let them just run over me. But the more I stood up, the more they came back at me because the more innocent I became, the more weak I, I was perceived. So it works against you. Like in Billy and Lindsay, you guys all know this. If you're really, really innocent, you're really innocent, you're not thinking like that. You're not thinking how I got to clock somebody. You're thinking about, I got to get out of this son of a gun, man. They're going to use all this shit against me. And you're thinking like that, and it controls you. It does. It controls you because that disciplinary, even fighting, is going to be used in the media to make you look violent. How did you so, cope, Billy, with well, some of that violence? I mean, let me take you on the 360. Yeah. <laughs> Just like you guys used to have to punch them out. I don't know if you guys can, can believe this or not, but it actually happened in my case. Now, uh, I did 19 years and 11 months. I was one month away from the actual 20 years that I would have to do before I was eligible for parole. I had one fight. I had one fight that I actually served time in solitary confinement for. I was so afraid of getting a real case, a real you know what I'm saying? Yes, I Catching do. a real case of really hurting someone and possibly killing someone because I had so much anger and so much rage. And, you know, I, I, was, I was so, because I know if I ever got, just got a hold of somebody, I would hurt them. I would really do something to hurt them. And if someone had ever charged me or find out what I was in prison for and call themselves going to bash my head in or beat me or rape me, I would have killed that sucker. I would have had I would have had a life sentence. I would have got arrested in prison and and, and, and and got a case for something for really doing something. See, it's the flip side to everything. See, like these guys, they actually had to fight and some of the other guys or exonerees out of Dallas County, they got out they fought from the time they was in there pretty much to the time they got out. On the other hand, the way I fought I fought silently, and I fought with the books, with the law books. You know, I fought to gain my innocence. Uh, I had that one fight. I went solitary. The other times I fought, I fought in a way of controlling my anger. I fought, you know, that was a struggle for somebody to call you a bunch of niggas, a bunch of bitches, and a bunch of hoes. And that's the type of language that, you know, that you incur. That's the type of abuse that you didn't care, especially once, you know, you let the cat out of the bag and people find out what you're in there for. You suffer the abuse from, I'm talking about from prison guards. You know, that was a, you know, I, I went, I had, I took AANA, I went different type of uh, psych, psychological counseling and stuff to help me deal with what I was in prison for. No one never knew that, but I was seeking all kinds of treatments to help me deal with it. Whenever I would uh, get to the point where I did have a lot of arguments, but whatever I got to the point where it was about to get to something, something would help me to just pull me back and just restrain me and make me have discipline to walk away. Now, 
some people looked at me being weak looking, but they knew, and people know you, and I had been in prison before, so I, I had a lot of guys that knew me. They knew it's just something about you that people know not to mess with you, not to, you know, come to you with that uh, something's going to happen to you. See, I was on the unit where they had death row inmates. I was on the O.B. Ellis unit uh, from 1987 to 2006 when I was released. That was one of the hardest units you could be on in Texas Department of Correction. That was the unit where the, the seven that, that, that broke out. And, you know, I was on that unit until they moved them. Every day was a struggle for me because I had to struggle to keep from fighting. But I used to get in plenty of arguments. I used to get in a lot of tussles. But I always was always something that kept me from just being physical. Johnny could tell you, he was there with me. He was there when I got there. And he was there when I left. And then he caught up with me. But I was like, I tried everything I could do to be a model inmate. And so I wanted to make sure that if I ever lived to come up for parole, I would have this good conduct thing behind me. But I had my issues, I had my problems, and I had my squabbles, and, you know, I had my times when, you know, uh, things would go down, you know, and, but I was able to be disciplined enough to walk away and get out of it. But amazingly, I look back at how I was able to survive this ordeal all those years and only had one fight. When I've seen some guys go through it and get stabbed two or three times, I've seen men get stabbed over a, 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 a T-shirt someone stole from them. I've seen men lose their lives behind somebody wouldn't buy them a pack of cigarettes or wouldn't give them one cigarette. Oh, prison is really dangerous. And to have to be subjected to something like that all those years, knowing that I didn't uh, commit this crime, I mean, no one understands what, what I feel, what, I, what went on inside of me, physically, mentally, how it took, what it took from me. It took something out of me that can never be replaced. You know, you can't compensate me for the, the, the loved ones that I lost. You can't compensate me, nor can you expunge anything that has happened to me because it's no matter where I go, no matter how fast I run, it's going to be right there with me. And whatever turn I take, it's going to be right there with me. I'm going to die with this. I have to live this rest of my life. When someone asked me what happened, well, uh, and if a year goes up in 1990 or 86, 90, and some comes, where were you at? I have to tell them I'm in prison. So since we can't, there's obviously no way to make up for those years that you've lost, even with compensation for any of you. But one thing we can at least try to do is, is learn from what went wrong in each of your cases and hopefully fix the problems so that hopefully no one else has to live through these kinds of things. Michael, can you start talking a little bit about what you think some of those solutions would be? Sure. Um, no matter what happened to us, what our experiences were inside, um, no matter what we do about it, it's not going to change what happened in the past, but we can affect what's going to happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things I'm doing, and a lot of people are involved, 
is not wholesale revolution, changing everything up, ending the system. It doesn't take that, and there would be plenty of resistance for it. But we can make small changes, uh, small legislative changes. I'm involved with some folks right now. Hopefully in this session, we can do two small things that cannot change what has happened, but will prevent any of this stuff happening again. And that's making prosecutors liable if they break the law. Um, and by liability, I mean accountability. Nothing radical, but just have them uh, eligible for a small fine if they're caught breaking the law. And if they're caught breaking the law, have their law license put in jeopardy. No thinking prosecutor is going to risk his law license just to get a bogus conviction. No matter, you know, just to get some guy off the street because their law license is their livelihood. And I don't want to um, hamstring them. Prosecutors serve a real function. They represent you. They represent me. They have a job to do. But what we're trying to stop is abuse. Um, almost all professions have a certain degree of liability. And I think the, probably the key word to use is accountability. Just do... The, we, we want of our prosecutors the same thing that we want of you or me or anybody is just obey the rules. And the system will work the way the system's supposed to work. Um, but if, if... I can't think of anybody who would be against... Um, making those small changes. And I, I've re I'm bowled over and shocked and just I'm constantly surprised at the people who are on board with this thing, who actually believe something may happen this session. Um, even the State Prosecutors Association, they think something's going to happen this semester, uh, this session rather, and that um, they want to be on board. And everybody has their agendas. But there are some issues that are common amongst everybody. And I think those two will probably fit everybody's um, wants, their desires, what they would like to happen. Now, everybody wants something else to happen, but on these few things, everybody can agree. Carrie, you had some thoughts about... Yes. Um, this, my, my story is not one against uh, police or district attorneys. Uh, Prison didn't teach me to be liberal. Prison taught me to be conservative. We need to be protected from uh, people who commit violent crime. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, having, having said that, uh, what you have to keep in mind is that our prosecutors and judges are all elected. They're elected officials. They're elected officials cloaked in what's called absolute qualified immunity. What is absolute qualified immunity? Well, I'll tell you what it means to us. It's a, it's a license to lie, cheat, and steal their way into the execution chamber. Or, in Michael Morton's case, and Billy Smith's case, 19 and 25 years in prison. Um, everyone... This, 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 this room should be actually so packed. There should be people outside down the halls. You can't even get in the building. Because this affects all of us. What, what happened to us ha can happen to you. And how does it happen... It starts with the absolute qualified immunity, the license to lie, cheat, and steal. They can do whatever they want. I'm not here to bash prosecutors. That's not what this is about. 
Some of you may be in law school and want to become prosecutors. I applaud you in that. However, that's how it happens when you can lie and cheat and steal and there's no consequences uh, whatsoever about it. That's how the wrongful conviction occurs. I wish Rob Kemple was in here or Shannon, Shannon Ed, uh, Edwards. I'd love to talk to those people, have a real serious, legit, in front of the public if possible, because um, uh, they can't feel us. They want to deny us. We're an abnormality. We're not an abnormality. We're here, and we're here because of Michael, uh, Ken Anderson, uh, Prosecutor of the Year, John Bradley, Con Prosecutor of the Year, Jack Skeens, in my case, Prosecutor of the Year. They reward police and prosecutorial misconduct in our state. That's not a statement I make out of resentment, a disgruntled ex-death row prisoner. I say that because it's just factually true. They reward prosecutorial misconduct in this case. Ken Anderson became a district judge. My prosecutor, Jack Skeens, became a district judge, both appointed by Rick Perry. Or I think, well, mine was appointed by Rick Perry. John Bradley, prosecutor of the year. Jack Skeens, prosecutor of the year. We, we, we reward it. And until, until, and I think Michael Morton has the best chance to bring this final change to, to, to Texas with his case, until we can take talk seriously about accountability, like his case I think is going to do, there will be no changes. We'll, we'll be preaching to the choir for the next generation of wrongful convictions, the next Billy Smith and Michael Morton and Kerry Cook. Accountability is the key. And until such time, they have it. There's going to always be panels like this and a need for more talk and discussion. One of the small sort of rays of sunshine here is at least there have been some changes because Texas has seen so many exonerations and one of the changes to come is a recognition of really flawed ways that police were conducting eyewitness uh, lineups and identifications in the past and that was at least in part you know helped by your case Billy can you talk about those changes and and whether you're seeing any difference yeah uh, what I want to say is that you know uh, Cooks talk about being rewarded for prosecutorial misconduct. I don't know that uh, because the laws are said that you know you can get case reversed because of uh, uh, prosecutorial misconduct. I think that if the district attorneys are rewarded, they're rewarded for the number of convictions uh, that they that they get. And I think that uh, uh, I think that. When you look at prosecutors, you know, they'll tell you, they'll be quick to tell you that there's no such thing as a perfect case. But when DNA came out, it proves that there's such thing as perfect innocence, you see. And I think that uh, when you look at one of the main flaws in the system that's hurt so much that, that causes uh, wrongful convictions is our witness identification. Uh, I've been pleased and blessed to be able to work with people here in the past uh, few years that have been able to uh, bring up the level of eyewitness identification so that when uh, uh, someone is calls file or calls, says rape or robbery by murder or something where uh, you know a person has to be identified that the scrutiny uh, is able to be more definite now and I think that this is, 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 is good because you know 
when you start with the arresting officer, you know, that's where it all starts at. And it starts, when it gets to the district attorney's office, then there's a determination on whether this case is valid or not. But when you, when you know, if you don't follow proper procedures and, you know, there's so many procedural errors that take place that, you know, people don't realize that I, I think that for the most part prosecutors commit more trial errors than the actual criminal defense attorneys do. And, uh, yes, a lot of they get away with it because of the immunity. Now, I don't think that this state or any state, anywhere, it's just my personal opinion, I don't think it'll ever happen where they'll be prosecuted for prosecutorial misconduct, but I don't think that the, the, the district attorneys and the judges are going to, you know, going to fix a law that's going to hurt their buddies. You know, I just think that, you know, I hope that if something happens, I hope that, 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 uh, that somewhere or another that the district attorneys can be held responsible for, for their actions or what they do, but we have to be realistic here, you know. You have judges that have sons and daughters that are prosecutors. You have people that in places that work together. You have people that's going to knock things down, and you have people that's going to uh, set things right. I hope that someday that prosecutors will be able to be held accountable for their actions when they know that if they had turned over a certain piece of evidence that could have freed a person, you know, I think that they should be punished for that. I think that if anything that, 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 that can put them in jeopardy and make them be responsible, you know, we should have laws like that. I'm hoping, I'm praying for that. But is it likely to be a reality? We'll never know, but just don't ever say never. You don't know, because we did some things in Austin that they said would never be done or could never be done. There's been things going on in Dallas that they said could never be done. Mind you, after we change district attorneys, uh, this young man is just walking in right now, uh, Craig Watkins, because of him, many things have been able to be changed in Dallas County alone. Dallas County has more exonerees than any other county in the state of Texas, you know, and uh, because of his actions to take a stand on seeking justice first instead of conviction, you know, a lot of things have been able to be done in Austin, and I think this coming session, some other things are going to be able to happen. It's going to be able to benefit, and I'm sure hoping that my boy Mike wins his case because, you know, he's, he's got a case going on now that really needs to be won. We need to have people that's going to go to Austin, that's going to write it, going to write them letters, going to, uh, you know, give their congressmen and representatives and, you know, do things to, the, to get the word out, to, to encourage the people there to do the right thing because his case is landmark. Bill, I think we got a real shot here. Yeah, people know each other just a second. Um, a lot of attorneys want this to happen. And we have to look at this another way. All attorneys want reform in this, in this area because it adds integrity to the system. And every attorney's livelihood depends on whether or not we have any faith in the system. So it, it behooves us as citizens, the, the mass, but it also helps attorneys. Because if we don't have any faith in the system, they're out on the street and we're not even going to use this anymore. So it's in their best interest for this to happen. 
Brandy, two, two, two things. Okay. We're not to the question and answer two. part yet. I'm not making a question. We're not there yet. Can you just wait? We'll ask, have a time for audience participation in a few moments. I'm an exoneree, and I'd like to make some comments. We're just, can you please wait? See, that's just it. They don't want to hear. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to believe that it can happen to any one of you. That's the biggest problem, is making people believe that you could be the next victim of a criminal justice system that is criminal. Prosecutors and judges working together to convict the innocent because that is their ticket. Excuse Brandy. me. We're going to go ahead and get back yeah. to the panel now. Thank you. Brandy, two, two, two things. I, uh, we, we could be here a long time, but two, two things I think uh, the Texas legislature needs to take up, uh, two critical errors, one, uh, issues. One, uh, I think they ought to make all interrogations mandatory in Texas. That's one. And two, uh, uh, the suppression of Brady material. The suppression of Brady material certainly... Uh, caused my wrongful conviction in 1978 and then also uh, through the nearly four capital murder trials I went through in the 90s, still the same suppression of exculpatory evidence. We need sanctions for the, exculp uh, for the, for the suppression of exculpatory evidence. It doesn't, it doesn't have any teeth. It's a, it's a landmark decision, Maryland versus Brady, but it doesn't have any teeth. The prosecutors flagrantly uh, suppress exculpatory, even in the report, uh, the Texas uh, District and County Attorneys Association. Rob Kempel just just refers to the. It's not as pandemic as uh, uh, you would think it is, and it's just a suppression of exculpatory evidence, uh, Brady material in a few cases. But even if it was one case, much less so casually alluding to it, that's the problem. That's how the what is what is Brady material? What is exculpatory evidence? Evidence that would tend to establish the innocence of the accused. We're not talking about a technicality. Like in Michael's case, in my case, the suppression of evidence would have, we wouldn't be here on this panel. That's the problem. The, the, the suppression of we'll be, we'll be able to have a. It's obstruction of justice. That's what it is. And there's the teeth there, but it's getting them to, put, to, work, to enforce it. The obstruction of justice is a federal law. We're going to have a discussion later today with a number of prosecutors who will be here to talk about, you know, from their perspective, what sort of changes can be made. A Brady violation and it's a minor offense. No, it's obstruction of justice. It's a federal felony, and they should be in prison for it. Thank you. What they did to Michael, to, to Michael Morton. We'd like to discuss. Tens continue. Of thousands of hundreds of thousands of others in this country. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and open it up for questions from the audience to these fine gentlemen who have been so gracious with their time this morning. Sir, can you ask? Go ahead. Does Texas run a good prison system? Define good. I'll let you go. I guess my question is, you guys described a terrible environment in prison. Is that an inevitable circumstance? I think I think it is still to this day, sir. Uh, uh, for example, um, when you're sentenced in prison, whether it's Michael Morton was sentenced or Billy Smith or when I was sentenced, nowhere in the judge's findings does he say you're going to be sentenced to life of 25 years and 19 years and 22 years 
in my case, my penalty was death. Nowhere in the judge's order did it say you're going to go to prison, be tortured, and raped for the next 22 years. Texas is, uh, has, has the five, uh, five of the uh, ten uh, biggest prisons in America where, where rape occurs to, to this day. Still this day. So we may have, you know, brought up with uh, uh, somewhat technology. We may have hired more guards since Ruiz versus Estelle, but we still have the same old problem. The prisoners aren't protected. The prison system still understaffed. We still have the same old problems. So I would say to your question, question no, we, we don't run the best prison system in America. Uh, publicly, we may present it that way, but if you're one of the inmates and you're one of the innocent inmates, no, it's a sentence of hell. Prison's primary function is to keep the guys behind the fences. That's all. So they accomplish that. Um, everything else is just gravy, and <laughs> it's the. Um, it's not unlike any other organization. It relies on the quality of the people running it. It's a business. Well, it's a money losing business if you want to call it a business. But is it a good system? Um, doesn't really matter. It's the system we have. Uh, I want to say there's no perfect prison, but in prison, uh, if you take it, there are some things in prison you can take advantage of, you know, and uh, to better yourself while you're there, to better yourself to be a better person when you get out. There are educational programs, there are vocational programs, there are a lot of different things that you can do in prison, but, uh, but for the overall thing, prison is prison. Yeah. And no one can go to prison, especially for a long time, and come out and not be affected. You're there to be punished. It's punitive. Sandra, did you have a question? I, um, I haven't heard, um, and, and Billy, I'm not sure about your case, but I haven't heard Carrie or Michael when they're talking about the prosecutorial misconduct and the alcohol and the effects of it. I haven't heard them talk about the collateral damage um, as in Shyster, as in, as in Shyster, or as in uh, your, uh, your wife's murder. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? What yeah. happens when they don't have a case, the prosecutors, that's how the misconduct happens. They have to make a case, and then that one, one, of the, one of the collateral uh, tragedies, one of the collateral tragedies of a wrongful conviction uh, I don't know about Billy's case, but I do know about Michael's and I's, is this. In, in, in my case, my, my entire conviction in the beginning, in the beginning in 1977 and 78, was based on an inmate in jail who was, uh, had been in jail for 22 months for murder. He brutally murdered a man at a pool hall in Tyler, Texas. Um, I was held in solitary confinement the entire 11 months I was in a Smith County jail waiting trial. And uh, the, this inmate came forward many... Uh, uh, right after he got a secret deal, it talked about A.D. Clark, the prosecutor, who's now in the Attorney General's office in Texas. Rewar again, the reward system I talked about. He talked about they showed him the murder pictures, told him what to testify to, showed him the wounds, and so forth. So to the jury, uh, A.D. Clark argued to the jury that this inmate just told you Kerry Max Cook confessed to this brutal murder. Don't ignore this testimony because he knew things only the murderer knew. Well, what he didn't tell the jury was that the secret deal he had with A.D. Clark, which came out uh, later. But the collateral damage of that is this. 
they did, he did get the secret deal. They did uh, do exactly what two other inmates in the Smith County Jail came and testified and said they would do. They dropped Shyster Jack, his name was Shyster Jackson. They dropped his murder charge down to involuntary manslaughter and gave him 22 months, time served, had already been in jail, and Shyster Jackson went free. What did he do? Like what Michael Morton can talk about in his case in a minute? Well, in my case, he went out and he murdered two other people. He's in the Missouri State Penitentiary doing life without possibility of parole for two additional capital murders. The blood of those innocent victims, it's actually three people, but the blood of those four people, actually, including the one originally he was convicted for, the blood of those four people were on the hands of the Smith County District Attorney's Office, who, to this day, zero accountability. I wish Craig Watkins practiced in Smith County. Yeah, um, a lot of the accountability or, well, to what, collateral damage. The thing to remember, too, is, um, Billy said, prison is prison. Part of it doesn't really matter if you're innocent or guilty. The collateral damage is the guy's going to go to prison, but he has a wife. He has a girlfriend. He has brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, and it just kind of goes out in concentric rings. Um, another type of collateral damage just besides the family and the friends is when something like this happens other crimes are committed yeah yeah the wrong guy's in prison but the guilty man's out there doing other stuff um, and we cannot be 100% sure what all is going to happen how many there are can I say something about uh, uh, half, the aftermath of, of uh, wrongful conviction see this guy I'm 1987, and today I still don't look like him. And this guy that actually did the rape, uh, the woman. Uh, on the aftermath of wrong convictions, people don't understand how that, you know, back in the day when DNA first came about, it only took something like the size of a quarter to be able to get the blood stain to determine who did it and who didn't do it. Nowadays, it only takes like something like uh, the period at the end of your sentence to, to get a profile to prove your innocence. See what I'm saying? Now, but when you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you look back at how that in, in that, in that instance, just knowing that, you know, I understand how it's so hard nowadays so that when you DNA can free you or can get you uh, released on a reconnaissance bond and that another thing, it can show that you're innocent. Uh, uh, but it, you know, it's just so hard to prove your actual innocence. What is the downfall of that? A good friend of mine that I, that I knew for years, went to school with him, everything. He got convicted, uh, DNA exonerated him. He got out, it, and he never got a chance to prove his actual innocent claim. He suffered tremendously mentally. He lost it. He lost out of it. I saw him lay his head down and cry like a baby. He ended up dying before he could actually prove, or before he could get his actual innocence. His name is Larry Sims. You all may have read about him, heard about him uh, just last year. We just buried him just earlier this year. But he had did over 25 years in prison. <coughs> DNA cleared him, 
could never get his actual innocence claim. The man died not being able to actually clear his name. You know, myself and a couple of other, uh, several other exonerees, we attended this funeral. We buried our brother. We buried him in shame. You think that that don't affect us? That affects every exoneree. When someone has been wrongfully convicted, they get out, and then you still have to fight to prove you're innocent, and you die before you do it, before you can do it. That affects us all. That hurts us all. That's a, not talk about collateral damage. I mean, you know, you, you throw him away, you kick him out, you give him a hammer, but you don't give him no nails to rebuild his life, and you, he, and he die in shame and without being able to prove actual innocence. That affected me. It still affects me. Yes. It's a good question. She asked why it's so difficult to get permission to get DNA testing. Well, in prison, uh, for the most part, if you if you have uh, a rape case, you pretty much what they tell you you you, you qualify, and uh, if you do, you don't cost you anything. But it's still hard. Now, when I when I applied for it in 2000, when it first became available. Uh, where it was legitimately used to, uh, the, for determination, uh, I was denied. Then it go back again in 2003 and go another way and file for it, and I got granted. And then it was in 2006, they called me back to Dallas County Lusteric Jail, and I thought I had to have a, an attorney with me and everything to do DNA. They called me out, called me down to the nurse station, wanted to take my DNA. I was scared. I told them, I'm going to do it. They told me, well, Miss Smith, we have to tie you down and, and force me to take it. We're going to take this DNA because the judge is out of it. Well, I thought they was going to do it and take it and contaminate it. You know, I already been convicted. I already been in prison 20 years, so I wasn't trying to trust them. You know, but they won't got it. God willing, God Protected me, he, you know, did did his job and everything. He did it. They sent me back, and then it took about about another three, four months, and uh, they called me back. And then, uh, what I actually, I got the letter in the mail, uh, telling me that I had been uh, excluded. I was in the commissary line buying commissary, <laughs> and uh, I got my legal mail, and I was there reading it. And uh, I was standing in front of the guy, behind the guy, and I read it. And when it told me, and it said that it, it wasn't me, I just dropped my head on his shoulder, and I just went to crying like a baby. He said, brother, what's wrong? I said, man, I'm going home. So I'm going home. You know, and I just, you know, I, you know, what could I say? But it took 20 years for me to be able to get or to prove my innocence. I had been telling my nieces, I had been telling my sisters, I had been telling my nephews, I had been telling my brother, I had been telling all my family members, people that knew me, the people that cared about me. That was more important for me, for my nieces and my sisters to know that I didn't do this. That was the thing that was in, and, and two of my sisters died before they got to know that their brother didn't do this while I was in prison. But it's very, very hard. 
And once you do get, get it, then, you know, someday they still fight you. Just got a couple of minutes left. If you both want to quickly address the DNA timing question. Um, in, in 2001, the Texas legislature passed a law because of the advent of uh, uh, DNA and wrongful convictions in which they, uh, the law called for uh, all district attorneys of the 254 counties in Texas to, uh, uh, before destroying any, any potentially biological evidence or evidence that could yield DNA results, uh, they had to notify first the defendant's lawyers by, by letter and also the defendant, him or herself, who would no longer be a defendant if they were out. But they had to notify both counsel of record and the former defendant. Well, uh, like, like the Brady violations uh, uh, versus Maryland, there, there's no sanctions for the violation of that. You take, you take my case, for example, even though that law was in effect, uh, the prosecutors in my case, we just found out in my, my, my quest to prove my own, to be exonerated, um, they destroyed all the evidence in my case. And one of the police officers took the weapon, murder weapon, as a souvenir from the evidence room with a lock of my hair. That's been in the news recently. Um, there, there, while there is a law to preserve and protect DNA evidence for up to 40 years for those uh, for criminal defendants convicted and sent to prison, that same law doesn't offer any sanctions, any penalties for prosecutors who destroy the evidence. And someone could say, well, Carrie, that's great, but who's destroyed the evidence? Well, we've already proved it in Smith County. They destroyed the evidence in my case in violation of the law. But how illegal is it? The law doesn't come with a penalty for doing it. I think it comes down to the fact that <clears throat> coming to this room and sitting here and listening is fine, but you, if you're, in, if you're concerned about this, to be involved to vote, pay attention, who's your DA, you get the government you deserve yes. based on what you do. That's yes. a perfect place to wrap it up. Thank yes. you all so much for being here this morning. Give our panelists a round of applause. Thank you all so much.